Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And welcome everybody to the Pod's Honest Truth with David Brody. Hope you're well. Happy Easter. Happy post-Easter. Since we're recording this after the big day, Resurrection Sunday. Uh, hope you had a great Easter. I'm uh, going to tell you a little bit about my Easter in a moment. Don't want to bury the lead, though, because today on the podcast, the Vice President of the United States, Mike Pence, sat down with me over the weekend. We will have the full interview today on the Pod's Honest Truth. That's coming up. But first, I've got to tell you a little bit about my Easter. I mean, hey, first of all, thank you to me. I stayed home online, did not go into the pews. Don't worry. I should be fine. I'm just sitting here watching an online service over the weekend, so that's good. Uh, besides that, hey, what did I do? I organized the closet, so that was good uh, Easter activity. Uh, cleaned the laundry room, so that was nice. By the way, Jesus in the laundry room as well, so look, Jesus is everywhere. Um, bagged some leaves, so that's always good because, remember, he's not just in the laundry room, he's also outside, so if you go out and bag leaves, don't worry, folks, he'll be there with you. And then I thought what was interesting is um, I actually read an article, uh, and, and this is always uh, wonderful to read. Um, you know, we believe that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. Obviously, the, the tomb uh, is empty. Uh, and we, of course, we believe that by faith. But in case, for those of you who don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, there is this mathematical and scientific analysis called, ready for this? This is a full, long title. I hope I don't mess it up. A Bayesian Analysis of the Cumulative Effects of Independent Eyewitness Testimony for the Resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's a lot of syllables. Once again, let me read that to you again. This is what I read over the weekend. A Bayesian Analysis of the Cumulative Effects of Independent Eyewitness Testimony for the Resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, look, yes, they have mathematical formulas. They've done probability on this. It's very, very interesting. I would suggest you read it after, you know, look, for example, watch Paint Dry and then read this, it'll be uh, one of the best things you do. Actually, pretty interesting. All right, let's get to the topic at hand. Before we get to the vice president, I want to talk about religious freedom and churches and the coronavirus. Now, we've been talking about all of this uh, for quite some time, but it seems now we've gone to a whole nother level here. Remember, we started out talking about, hey, keep it online. There are some ha a handful of churches that are uh, worshiping in the pews, and once again, just a handful of them, and that that seemed to be a bit ridiculous. Let's be honest. I think at one point I called it uh, stupid church syndrome there uh, as it relates to meeting. However, uh, we've now taken it to a whole nother level, and let me explain what that level is. Basically, um, if you're going into drive-in church services. So, for example, you take your car and you go into the church parking lot and they're going to hold a service in the church parking lot through, you know, you listen to the church service on your FM radio and the pastor is there in the parking lot, but you're in your car and the cars are six feet apart. We're talking social distancing of cars now. Well, folks, there are some places, for example, in Greenville, Mississippi, where they will ticket you for actually attending a drive-in 
service. That's right. You never got out of your car. Your car itself is six feet apart and they will still ticket you. And then in Kentucky, uh, the, the governor there has decided that, hey, you know what? Let's go into church parking lots and record every single license plate number that we see. And then let's give that license plate uh, information to public health officials. And then guess what? Let me do a sound effect. Can I do this? Hold on. Listen to this. That's a knock at your door, and that's a public health official saying, hey, you were at a church parking lot. You shouldn't have been there because you were attending a service. And so guess what? You need to self-quarantine for 14 days. Hey, folks, we're getting into some really beyond murky constitutional issues. Many would say unconstitutional issues. So we have taken it up another notch. I spoke about all of this on C-SPAN over the weekend. Nothing quite like getting up on Easter Sunday at 8 in the morning and being on C-SPAN. Hey, I love the folks over there, but hey, I mean, it's a little early on a Sunday morning. Anyhow, I did it, and we had a very interesting discussion about this topic. Here's a few minutes from that. Take a listen. What's your sense of how religious leaders, Christian obviously on this Easter Sunday, but across the spectrum, are are handling the um, the challenge of uh, of getting a congregation together somehow or keeping them apart? It's a good question, and uh, it's a challenge to a degree, but I want to do a disclaimer off the top, and it's an important disclaimer that I think really will cloak uh, the whole conversation that we have this morning, Bill, which is that most most Christians, most pastors, uh, most churches are, are indeed abiding by either the federal guidelines, or the state guidelines, what have, what have you. So, I mean, look, the reality is uh, for most of the country, for most uh, evangelical Christians, for Christians worldwide, or excuse me, um, uh, Christians across this country, they are abiding. Uh, by, by these rules. So, so when we get into talking about certain cases, we're talking about a certain handful of churches that have decided not to do that. Uh, but it has been a challenge. And I think more, even more than that, I think, how do you come up creatively with ways uh, to go ahead and, and hold church, not just online, most people are turning online, but whether they be driving services. I mean, we've seen uh, situations where a uh, communion is being delivered on, let's say, a Thursday. You drive through, you pick up the, the cracker and wine, if you will, or the grape juice, uh, and then you open it on Sunday during the online service. So, I mean, there's all different sorts of ways uh, that people are getting prayed up and churched up uh, during this very, very difficult time. It does seem like the decisions of governors, in some cases mayors, have have or will raise uh, an interesting constitutional question about the, the ability of the government to say to religious organizations, no, you can't or you really shouldn't meet in person, or worst case scenario, you're subject to some sort of fine or penalty. Well, that's exactly right. And so we have the contours of the argument, if you will. It's a public health versus religious freedom, two very, very uh, important contours uh, in, this, in this discussion. Uh, and so what do you do exactly? And I think what we're seeing, Bill, is a line of demarcation. Uh, I, I, most, For the most part, you see Christians and pastors and evangelical leaders being okay with heeding those guidelines and siding on the side of public health. That's fine. But when do you start crossing the line? And I think we started to see this now obviously popping up, as you know, in the news, whether it be down in Mississippi, in Greenville, Mississippi, uh, where they're ticketing people that are going in their car. Now, remember, these are cars in a drive-in uh, church service. They're not entering the building. The cars themselves, not the people, the cars themselves are six feet apart. 
cars are social distancing. And yet these folks down in Mississippi are getting ticketed. Uh, we know about what's going on in Kentucky as well, whether it be license plates being reported uh, on Sunday, this Sunday, Easter Sunday, uh, by uh, authorities that will then be reported uh, those license plates will then be reported to public health officials. And so uh, you have church folks that if you go to a church parking lot in Kentucky, they write down your license plate number, and all of a sudden you get a knock at the door the next day by the public health officials saying, hey, you know what? You need to be quarantined for 14 days. Now, at that point, we're starting to cross the line, and I think that's where this debate is going, and I think that's the big concern among evangelicals. I always like saying this, but I'm going to say it. That's David Brody on The Pod's Honest Truth. That's right. My C-SPAN interview, at least a few minutes of it. Nothing like uh, taking calls across America, by the way. You never know what you're going to get. All right. Uh, look, but let's go back now to Louisiana. There is that Life Tabernacle Church down there. Tony Spell is the pastor. He has been basic. He's been fined six times, six misdemeanors for continuing to hold church services in the pews down there, roundly criticized for it. I want you to listen to uh, some parishioners that attended his church this past Sunday. They had about, well, there's reports anywhere from 500 to 2,000. The bottom line is hundreds and hundreds of people attended his th this church on Sunday. Here are some of the parishioners explaining how they're not going to catch the virus because they believe in Jesus. Yes, that's right. Uh, here, here it is. You, won't, you guys won't get the virus because of your beliefs? Yes. No, I won't get the virus because Jesus says I'm not. If you got God inside of you, you have nothing to worry about. You're good. And we don't believe the governor's order is legal because both the federal constitution and the state constitution protect our right of free exercise and our right to peacefully assemble for that purpose. As far as we know, we don't have any reported cases. We expect that some of our congregation will eventually get it, just like the rest of the country, and we will deal with it when it comes. I mean, we're, we don't have an invisible shield that protects us. Well, that's all you got to do is trust the Lord. If you trust the Lord, you, I mean, people in the Bible have been healed. Well, there you have it. Those are some of the parishioners down there in Louisiana. And I just want to be very clear, okay? They're the outliers. That's not what evangelical Christians are doing across this country. It has been proven, um, not just anecdotally, but even Pew did research showing the majority of Christians have changed their patterns of going to church. They're pretty much going online now. That's a majority of evangelical Christians. So let's just, when, when it's very important when you listen to media stories out there and you hear about uh, some evangelical Christians or evangelical Christians are flouting the, um, the, the guidelines, look, for the most part, that is not true. Now, once again, very important, we are moving into dangerous territory here constitutionally. If you're going to start to ticket people in their cars, that's a whole nother matter, or start to record their license plates and show up at their front door. Once again, I'm not suggesting these people uh, should be going uh, to a drive-in service. If they want to do that, I mean, that's their business. Maybe they should just stay home and watch it online. We, we can have that debate, you know, ethically and morally, but constitutionally, uh, to to actually do that from a public health standpoint, to record someone's license plate and then show up at their home and say, you need to self-quarantine. Look, I'm not quite sure that that holds up in court, but we will see. All right, we're going to come back with the vice president. Uh, once again, this is justthenews.com. The Pod's Honest Truth is on the platform. Download it on uh, Apple, iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, anywhere you get your podcasts. John Solomon, 
uh, is up there as well with his podcast, wonderful podcast, John Solomon Reports, Cheryl Atkinson, great podcast as well, as you might imagine, the great Cheryl Atkinson, I believe that's, uh, she's trademarked that, no, no, she hasn't trademarked it, but the great Cheryl Atkinson, her podcast on justthenews.com. Anyhow, we're back in a moment with our one-on-one with the Vice President of the United States, Mike Pence, back in a moment. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. And welcome back to The Pod's Honest Truth. All right, time now for our interview with the Vice President of the United States. His name is Mike Pence. I have Googled it, so I know I am accurate. We had this uh, interview on Friday about 11 a.m. or so in the morning. Uh, Quick, interesting story before we get to the actual interview. I had one of those rapid COVID-19 tests done on me, the the makeup lady as well. We both uh, went down about an hour before the interview uh, to get this test with the White House medical unit. So we were ushered down about two floors below uh, the interview area. The interview took place in the ceremonial office of the old executive uh, office building there on the White House grounds. Anyhow, so a quick little uh, test. And they say in 15, 20 minutes, we'll have the results. If you don't hear anything, then you're fine. And indeed, I never heard anything. So I guess I was just fine. And then the vice president walked in at 1030 in the morning, 11 in the morning or so. And uh, boom, we had the elbow uh, COVID-19 bump. And then we started the interview. I will say in terms of getting this rapid test, not a big deal. Listen, let, let me just be very clear. And I don't mind, I'll say it across America. I've got kind of a low pain tolerance, okay? I'm just going to say it. And this was fine. It's five seconds up one nostril, uh, five seconds up another nostril. That's right. I just said the word nostril uh, twice, actually, in the same sentence. Uh, And that's it. And then you, you feel a little watery in the eyes because you just got something shoved up each nostril. Uh, but then you're just fine and it rubs off. You shake it off. You know, it's like not a big deal. And once again, I have a very low pain tolerance. All right. So who cares about all of that? I just thought it'd be interesting for you to hear a little bit of the backstory. But now the top story, which is our interview with Vice President Mike Pence, let you hear it and then we'll come back and I'll give you some analysis uh, coming out of it. Here it is. Mr. Vice President, great to see you. Good to see you, David. Thank you. Especially under these conditions. I know it's been very taxing for the American people. Obviously, you're heading up the coronavirus task force. The president said the other day uh, that he's hoping this will get back to at least some sense of normal very, very, very soon. How confident are you that after April 30th, we may see some difference here in the economy and getting back to normal? Well, from all the way back in January, President Trump has taken decisive action to put the health of America first. Stood up the coronavirus task force when there were 
only a few cases that had come in from China, suspended all travel uh, from China into the United States before the month of January was over. And from the time that he tapped me to lead the coronavirus task force, we've been bringing the very best recommendations and guidance uh, to the American people. And uh, despite the tragic losses, now more than 16,000 Americans have lost their lives and we, we grieve with those who grieve, but we do not grieve like those who have no hope. On this very special day, our faith gives us hope, but also because of what the American people have been doing, heeding the, the president's coronavirus guidelines for America, heeding their state and local officials. Uh, David, we're seeing, we're seeing real progress on the West Coast. Uh, the numbers of cases remain low and steady, which is a tribute to the people and the leadership of Washington State and California. Uh, and even in the epicenter, in the New York uh, City, New Jersey area, Connecticut, we're continuing to see, despite tragic losses, we're seeing a decline in hospitalization and what we hope is the beginning of a trend of a leveling of coronavirus cases. Same, same trends in New Orleans, uh, encouraging news in Detroit, but uh, it, 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 what, it, what's happening across the country is happening because the American people have put the health of others first. Uh, they've been putting the guidelines into practice. Uh, and in all of this 30 days to slow the spread, we just urge every American to continue to do just that. Do you expect something to change after April 30th? from a guideline perspective? We're gonna be following the data very carefully, but if, if as some of the experts suggest, if we are nearing the peak of the coronavirus and, and if Americans continue to do what they've been doing now uh, for weeks across the country in social distancing, avoiding gatherings of more than 10, using drive-throughs at restaurants, and particularly being careful around seniors with serious underlying health conditions mm -hmm. by practicing hygiene and social distancing. Uh, we believe we'd be in a very different place come the end of April and we'll be able to bring forward recommendations. The president looking literally on a county by county basis about how we, uh, we reopen America. What, but the president's given us a clear directive, David. We want to reopen America as soon as possible, but we want to do it responsibly and in a manner that puts uh, the health of the American people first. I want to ask about a criticism that you've heard about the testing. Um, I, I know the White House had said in mid-March that about 4 million tests would be available. It's now almost mid-April. And, and that figure was never hit in mid-March. What's, what's what happened there? What was some of the lag? The traditional manner of testing uh, for any kind of infectious disease is that a person would re receive a test, it would be processed at either the CDC or a state lab. And that was the old system uh, that when the coronavirus struck America, our first came, case came and emerged in this country in February. Uh, the president immediately tasked us to pull together the vast resources of what are known as the commercial labs in this country, companies like uh, LabCorp and Quest, the uh, Abbott Laboratories and others, the people that actually create the devices that do rapid tests. Uh, we brought a consortium together at the president's direction. Uh, and in very short order, we're literally at a place today, David, where we're testing more than 100,000 
Americans a day. And we've developed uh, all new testing uh, format. Abbott Laboratories has a 15 minute test. I think you just took it, uh, that, right. that we're working to make available all across the country. And, uh, but, but the reality was there, was there were always many test kits out there, but the ability to process them rapidly was what the president addressed when we brought the full power of the private sector together. Uh, and now, as I said, uh, uh, more than two million tests done, and we're going to continue to scale and increase the amount of testing during this epidemic, but also create a foundation uh, for a new modern rapid testing system uh, for coronavirus and, and other diseases for years to come. The faith community, uh, they by and large have been obeying these guidelines. I do want to address some of those rogue pastors, if you will, that are still holding services. And I know that's the minority uh, of pastors, but there are some who claim religious freedom, all of that. Um, what do you say? What's your message to those that are still holding services in the pews? Well, I would have I would have a message to uh, faith communities across the country, and, and first and foremost, it would be a word of gratitude. I mean, our our churches and synagogues and communities of faith across America have risen to the challenge. Um, you know, I talked to my mom this morning, and she had a, she had a neighbor who was bringing over some fresh groceries. I mean, I mean, it, it would be impossible to fully describe what faith communities, even during a time of social distancing and not being able to meet, have still been putting hands and feet on their faith. And, and it's one of the reasons why the president and I have took efforts to remind every American, as I do so again, that even if you're not in the pew on Sunday, that ministry is still going on. And so to the extent that you're able to continue to contribute to your local church, your local synagogue, your ministry, we encourage you to do that because those communities of faith are making such an immense difference. And we are also grateful uh, that, that, uh, that I think most communities of faith around the country have heeded the president's coronavirus guidelines for America and avoided gatherings of more than 10. And to those who would, as we go into this very precious uh, Easter weekend, who might think otherwise, I would just uh, remind as a brother in Christ that you know, where two or more are gathered, there he is also. Mm -hmm. And uh, this weekend, my wife and I will will gather in the living room at the vice president's residence. We'll watch our home church, College Park uh, in Indiana. And then after that, we're going to have a Skype Easter brunch with our kids around the country. We're all making do, but we can we can still worship. We can still practice our faith and uh, and practice the really important social distancing that at this time in the life of our nation is just so important. We've seen some bipartisanship in Congress, though there's been some, there's been some back and forth, as you might imagine. Um, do, do you believe Democrats on this phase four and going forward are playing some politics, especially with this small business administration money, but also this mail-in voting that they're really pushing for money for that? Uh, they seem pretty intent on getting that done. What do you think about the mail-in voting specifically, the money for it? Well, let me first credit uh, the Republican and Democrat leadership in the Congress that has responded to President Trump's call uh, with not one but three different pieces of legislation. First, to make sure all of our federal agencies had the resources to meet this moment. Second, to make all coronavirus 
testing free and to extend paid family leave to every American. But the last piece of legislation was truly extraordinary. The average family of four by this time next week will receive a direct payment of $3,400 to assist them during this time. But for small businesses around the country, we've literally enrolled thousands upon thousands of companies in the Paycheck Protection Program, which will allow small businesses to keep people on the payroll for two months while our nation makes our way through the coronavirus. And we're also assisting larger businesses with what are called loan facilities through the Federal Reserve. It really has been a testament of, of Congress working at its best. Uh, but uh, look, there'll, there'll be issues that, that will be debated uh, in, in the days ahead. But I think uh, the president and I are both grateful uh, for uh, what President Trump likes to call the spirit that has animated efforts uh, on Capitol Hill and frankly, the relationships with governors all across the country. I mean, we've literally been working every day uh, with governors in both political parties across America. And it's just what the American people would want to see at, at a time like this. Just to clarify, do you think the mail-in balloting uh, in terms of the funding that Democrats want, do you believe that is political in nature? Well, I'd, I'd leave that to others, and uh, that'll be an important debate in the days ahead. I know that um, uh, absentee ballots for people that are not able to participate in voting uh, are an important part of our electoral system. But, but um, our objective right now is to put the coronavirus in the past, and that, that these debates about uh, what will happen uh, on Election Day in November, uh, our, our goal is to is not only to reopen America as soon as possible, but we want to we want to make sure we can stay open. And uh, and as the American people uh, put the president's coronavirus guidelines into practice, the social distancing, as we we hope we are we are near the peak and the leveling and maybe even a downturn in the weeks ahead in the coronavirus. Uh, as we spin up testing, as we develop therapeutics, as we'll offer new guidance in the days ahead, we, uh, we, we look for the day that Americans can go back to focusing on all, all of the important traditions, and including good and vigorous elections that, uh, that await us this fall. Couple last questions. On the media, I wanna get your assessment of what you think the media has done here in terms of covering the coronavirus. I know there was that report by CNN saying that the Penn staff had, in essence, you know, had some of these scientists not go on CNN, at least for a while. Now that seems to have changed. What, what, is your, what is your sense of the way this media has covered this coronavirus? Well, I think uh, you know, there will always be differences. And um, what we call the fourth estate uh, will always be uh, asking questions. Um, but I think uh, the president and I feel that in the main, the media has served uh, an important role in keeping the American people informed. Uh, from uh, early on when the president uh, tapped me to lead the White House Coronavirus Task Force, uh, uh, we both thought it was important to be bringing the latest information uh, forward uh, to the American people, bringing uh, uh, those things that the president uh, has, uh, uh, has, uh, has deployed uh, across the nation. and. Uh, uh, hearing from our health experts as well, and and um, and I think that uh, I think we both feel that the media uh, has uh, 
has done a service in this. Um, and, and we'll continue to do as we've done, and that is provide that information to the American people. You know, I, I just, uh, I serve alongside a president who has boundless confidence in the American people uh, and making sure uh, that the American people have the facts, have the latest information. Uh, we have every confidence that we'll make our way through the coronavirus. And as President Trump often says, we'll come back stronger than ever before. I'm getting the wrap. So just quickly, though, uh, how you feel in terms of you've been in public policy a very long time. Is this the hardest thing that you've seen that you've had to deal with in public policy? How has this been for you personally? Well, for me, it's been a privilege to serve alongside a president who from the very earliest days of the coronavirus outbreak in America has been willing to take unprecedented steps to put the health of America first. And I think the American people can be encouraged that from the time that he suspended all travel from China, um, in January, from the time in that month when he stood up the White House Coronavirus Task Force, marshaled the full resources of the federal government, forged partnerships with states, worked with leaders in both parties, in Congress and in governor's offices. Uh, uh, we are meeting this moment uh, as a nation uh, with a president who's made it clear to the American people, we will spare no expense, leave no stone unturned, and we will do whatever it takes to not only see the American people through this time, uh, but, but to see the American people in a way that will allow us to be stronger and more prosperous uh, for many years to come and to be serving alongside a president at such a time as this. Uh, it's the greatest privilege of my life. Mr. Vice President, always great to see you. Thank you, David. Good to see you. That is Mike Pence on the pod's honest truth. A couple interesting nuggets from that interview. Obviously, the faith stuff, if you will, uh, made some news. Uh, the fact that he basically said to those rogue pastors, cut it out. I mean, he didn't say it because he, he didn't say it like that because he's Mike Pence and he has a way of saying things uh, in a diplomatic way. But the truth of the matter is that's what he was doing. Also, I thought the the question and answer, especially his answer, not my question, uh, on testing was interesting. Uh, basically, they're having this whole new model that they're trying to create, in essence, make it a public-private partnership going forward, because let's be honest, the CDC uh, and the FDA uh, and bureaucratic red tape are all in the same sentence. It's an absolute nightmare, still is a nightmare, but they're trying to change that. We'll have to monitor that as it goes on. By the way, that is my uh, sixth interview with the vice president. I've done two with the president of the United States uh, during the time that he's been in office, but six with the vice president. I've known him for about 15 years, so we have a good relationship. Uh, he trusts my journalistic instincts, so that makes one of us. Uh, and so, you know, look, how many times, let's see, if I've done six interviews, if I can go through this, if you don't mind me just like thinking about when I've done these interviews, but let's see, there was uh, one in uh, Michigan during the campaign. There was one in Montana during the campaign. This is 2018 I'm talking about, the midterm elections. There was one in the ceremonial office that I just did, obviously. There was another one outside the ceremonial office. That's four. And there was one at the uh, U.S. Naval Observatory. That is five. And I'll have to come up with the other one uh, somewhere, somehow. But uh, bottom line is, I've done six interviews uh, with the vice president. Uh, and, you know, he's an interesting guy uh, because he is not only just diplomatic, but let's be honest, I had about 10 minutes with him. The interview ended up going 13. 
I had about 10 minutes with him and, you know, he's very, very good on his answers in terms of not giving too much away, unlike Trump, where it's just a human etch-a-sketch and you never know quite where he's going to go. But the vice president, very disciplined. So it's kind of hard to interview him at times because especially when you have limited time, uh, you wonder about how much you can actually extract uh, from him because he very much is on point. By the way, I thought of the sixth time I had that interview with the vice president. It was in Jerusalem. That's right. How could I forget the day trip to Jerusalem? All right. That does it for the Pod's Honest Truth. Until next time, America, thanks for joining me here. We'll see you.